Chapter 3, Part 5 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Burney Smith, Chapter 3, Part 5, The Study of the Old Testament and the Religion of Israel. 4. The History of the Hebrews. Important and valuable as the work of interpretation is, it is only as its results are gathered up and given larger significance by the historian that it becomes to full fruition. Interpretation of documents is fundamental in the reconstruction of history, while history is the crown and glory of interpretation. Scope of History the historian seeks to cover the record of the whole life of a given people. There is no phase of its thought or activity that is not of interest to him. A full understanding of the development of any people requires a full knowledge of the various influences that have cooperated in the production of the result. The political history of a people cannot be understood as a thing apart from its intellectual, social, economic, ethical, and religious life. National life is a unitary thing. All its parts are bound together in one structure and exercise mutual and reciprocal influence one upon another. Every fragment of information of whatsoever kind is therefore of significance to the historian. He seeks for facts wheresoever they may be found, and, given equal powers of interpretation and exposition for all, the truest reconstruction of a people's history will be presented by that historian who is in possession of the widest and most accurate knowledge of facts. Dating of Sources Naturally, the most valuable source of information for Hebrew history is the Old Testament. The first step in the use of this source for historical purposes is to accept the results of literary criticism regarding the time of origin for each of the literary units composing the Old Testament. Its 39 books must be arranged in chronological order that each one may make its contribution at the proper point in the course of the history. Having gone thus far, we must go farther and discriminate among the various literary strata of which the Old Testament books are composed. The Hexateuch, for example, as a complete work belongs to the 4th century B.C., but it contains within itself elements of much greater age, some of which go back even as literary documents to the 8th or ninth century B.C., and perhaps farther. 
Before the Hexateuch can be properly used as a historical source, it must be analyzed into its primitive constituent elements, and these must in turn be arrayed in chronological order. In like manner, the books of Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah have been found to be composite and must submit to an analysis of a chronological assignment of the component parts. Similar processes are applied to the writings of the prophets and the poets. It is at this point that a large measure of uncertainty must attach to any effort toward a reconstruction of Hebrew history. The dating of many of the literary strata within the Old Testament is of necessity a somewhat subjective piece of work. Few tangible and definite chronological indices are at hand, and in their absence more reliance than is desirable has to be placed upon considerations of taste and judgment. The farther the historian moves from firmly fixed objective facts into the regions of thought and feeling, the more speculative are his results. But no truly historical mind can rest content with a bare list of chronologically attested facts. Chronology is not history, but merely its framework. The historian must fill in the picture as best he can, seeking for the full historical setting, of which the definitely known and placed facts form but a small part. It is inevitable, therefore, that there will always be many variant representations of the progress of Hebrew history. For conjecture and imagination, even when controlled by sound historical principles and methods, afford wide scope for variations in judgment. Facts versus Interpretation of Facts When a literary source has finally been definitely placed in time, a new problem presents itself to the historian. He is seeking for facts. His literary record offers him an interpretation of facts. The record is the product of some person's observation of an event, or study of a tradition, or thought upon an experience. Consequently, it partakes of the imitations and reflects the characteristics of the writer. A single individual, with the best will in the world, will almost inevitably give a partial or incomplete interpretation or one in which certain aspects of the fact or truth are given unique or undue prominence. The historian, therefore, must discriminate between a fact and its interpretation. Is the interpretation historically valid? Does it do full justice to the facts, or is it but a partial or prejudiced view? Was the writer in possession of all the facts or of a sufficiently large proportion of them to make it possible for him to arrive at a just estimate of the situation? Was his ability as an interpreter vitiated by the purpose for which he was writing? 
Did he desire primarily to find out exactly what the facts were and to make them known or were facts only secondary or incidental matters with him? his mind being set upon some great political, social, or religious end. A literary document that purports to narrate some past event is not infrequently a source of information regarding at least two periods, namely the age in which the event occurred and the age in which the narrator lived. To the extent to which a faithful record is given is of value as a witness to the actual facts. But even when, for various reasons, a document is anything but a faithful record of the actual facts, it may be of exceedingly great value for the age from which it itself originates. That is to say, a writer always reveals something of the milieu out of which he writes. Whatever he may or may not tell us directly of the more or less remote period whose history he is recording, he will certainly tell us, more or less indirectly, much regarding the times in which he himself lives. He will write in the language of his own day. He will drop occasional allusions to recent or contemporary occurrences and personalities. He will reflect the opinions, political, social, ethical, or religious, of his generation, and he will employ the literary and historical methods and point of view of the world in which he is living. No 20th century document could ever be mistaken for a 16th century document, even if it were a history of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. It is of the greatest importance that the historian of the Hebrew people should make this differentiation between fact and interpretation of fact. The Old Testament records, even those that professed to be written as histories, were all written by men who knew nothing of the modern scientific historiographical spirit and method. They were wholly lacking in all that goes to make up critical scholarship in the field of history. They accepted as true practically all that tradition had to offer them. They never dreamed of submitting traditions to cold-blooded scientific investigation. They wrote not for the purpose of recording facts for facts' sake, but for the edification and inspiration of their people. They selected their materials and modified them as seemed necessary from this point of view. The result is, not infrequently, a disproportionate emphasis upon some phase of the national life and a complete ignoring of others equally important. Furthermore, Hebrew writers, like all other ancient historians, were almost totally lacking in the sense of perspective. They were unable to make the necessary allowance for the lapse of time. They looked at events and situations from the standpoint of their own age. They did not think of the necessity of divesting themselves of all that the progress of time had brought to them and of putting themselves in the place of those whose sayings and doings they were recording.
they judged everything and everybody by their own standards and conceived of people of former generations as actuated by the same ideals and purposes as they themselves were they read back into ancient times the ideas and institutions of their own times without a thought of the incongruity that must often result from such a procedure the interpretive bias illustrated by the books of chronicles plentiful illustrations of the characteristics here enumerated is furnished by the books of chronicles in them the spirit and method of much of the hebrew writing is most clearly seen a comparison of these books with the corresponding portions of the books of samuel and kings is most instructive and illuminating these two sections of the old testament cover largely the same ground but the interests point of view and aims of the writers are widely different these differences control their selection and use of materials and results in interpretations which vary radically the chronicler living after the fall of the northern kingdom and regarding that kingdom as having been contrary to the will of yahweh throughout its history almost wholly ignores it in his narrative giving it mention only where the history of judah was so inextricably interwoven that uh, with that of israel as to compel recognition of the latter by the recorder the chronicler being concerned chiefly in an effort to validate the temple at jerusalem and its ritual as he knew them traces the institutions of his own day back to the days of david to whom he assigns the whole organization of the temple cultus the chronicler's david is an ecclesiastic first of all out of the nineteen chapters devoted to david's life and work in chronicles eleven are devoted to accounts of his activities in connection with temple ritual and the like the same desire to represent the great king david as fulfilling the chronicler's ideal of a king leads him to omit almost all reference to the sins of david which bulked so large in the samuel record the only sin noticed by him is that of taking the census and the striking difference appears in his narrative regarding it in second samuel twenty four one we are told that yahweh moved david to number israel and judah and then punished him and his people for doing so this was not ethically justifiable in the chronicler's eyes hence in first chronicles twenty one one we read satan stood up against israel and moved david to number israel similar liberty in modifying and even contradicting the earlier record is often taken by the chronicler when the purpose he has in mind seems to require it cf for example second chronicles fourteen five and seventeen six with first kings fifteen fourteen and twenty two forty three second chronicles twenty four twenty six 
and second kings twelve twenty one where the chronicler's attitude toward mixed marriages leads him to attach the terms ammonitis and moabitis second chronicles twenty four four through fourteen with second kings twelve five through seventeen second chronicles thirty six nine with second kings twenty four eight we have the advantage of being able to check the chronicler's accounts by the earlier records of samuel and kings they reveal to us the great freedom with which the chronicler has handled his sources and his facts more or less of the same attitude is discoverable in other old testament writings and the historical student must therefore always be on the lookout and ready to make allowance for the bias of his sources of information the historian must endeavor to find out how things actually happened he cannot rest content with the opinions and interpretations of uncritical writers even if they were eyewitnesses of that which they record he must compare testimony with testimony witness with witness and seek to get behind all records to the facts themselves geography as a historical source a second source of information that must be utilized to the full by the historian is the geography of palestine and the neighboring lands the land of palestine in relation to its illumination of the life story of jesus has been well named the fifth gospel the same kind of value is to be obtained from it for the understanding of the old testament the geographical data contained in the old testament are abundant scarcely a page but makes one or more topographical climatic geological political or ethnological reference for the understanding of which a knowledge of the geography of palestine and the neighboring lands is almost indispensable travel and residence in palestine and the study of good maps and handbooks have made the general topography of palestine familiar to most students the lay of the land the lakes and the rivers the hills and the greater valleys and many of the more important towns are well known on the other hand many places still await exact localization and sure identification for example gibeah of saul lodibar beth rehob salem topheth gath bethkar and aphic the political significance of the geographical location of palestine geography has much to do with the making of history location largely determines vocation climate and soil vitally affect character and function the situation of palestine was strategic it was as a glance at any map of western asia and egypt will show the only path of communication between asia and africa it lay between the great powers of the of these two regions as a connecting link all the commerce and culture of the ancient oriental world must 
perforce, passed through Syria and Palestine. Palestine received the impress of the civilizations of Crete and the Aegean, of Egypt, of the Hittites, of Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman, each in turn. It was the battlefield of contending tribes and the prize of the great world powers. The control of this bridge was indispensable to the aspirant for world dominion. Its inhabitants could not live the life of seclusion. They were inevitably involved in all the great military and political movements of each age. Their statesmen were continually confronted by great problems in the field of foreign affairs. The policy to be adopted in any great crisis became a subject of tremendous import and called forth opinion and discussion throughout the land. These people were continually in the forefront of the world's history and could not escape the effect of continual concern with great issues in the realms of politics and morality. The Economic Resources of Palestine the surface of Palestine is very broken. Hills of varying elevation are intersected by valleys of great or less extent, penetrating into the hills and ascending to various degrees of elevation. The Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea run like a deep gash through the land from north to south. With such great variety of elevation and of exposure, there goes a corresponding variety of products. Consequently, the land is to an unusual degree self-sustaining, providing for practically all the needs of its inhabitants. In contrast with the sanded deserts to the east and south, it is a garden of fertility. This has always made it the envy and the prey of marauding bands of Bedouins and attracted to it the hungry hordes of the desert. The Hebrews themselves approached it thus and looked longingly toward the land flowing with milk and honey. But large areas of its surface are limestone rock coated with an inch or two of soil which raises nothing but a little grass for a few weeks in the springtime. Consequently, famines were no uncommon occurrence, the area of productive land being so small and a full allotment of rain being necessary to a full yield. A study of the records of Judges and Joshua shows that the conquering Hebrews were for long confined almost wholly to the hillsides and that the fertile plains were held firmly by the Canaanites. Economic motives played no small part in the relations between the incomers and the older inhabitants. In like manner, reference to a raised map of Palestine and Syria will show that Damascus was cut off from Phoenicia and the coast by the Lebanon ranges. Her only way out was across the northern end of Palestine. The need of an outlet for her commerce may have had much to do 
with the long wars between Damascus and Israel. The economic resources of Palestine were so slight in comparison with those of the fertile valleys of the Nile and the Euphrates as to constitute a heavy and hopeless handicap to the Hebrews in any endeavor to rival the political and economic power of Egypt and Babylonia, Assyria. The Hebrews were never far removed from starvation. It may well be that this lack of things material contributed much toward the development of spiritual riches. In these and other ways, the influence of geography upon Hebrew history is easily discernible and it well deserves the careful consideration of students. Archaeology and History A third source of information regarding Hebrew history is at hand in Hebrew archaeology. This science concerns itself with the material remains of Hebrew civilization. These are fragments of ancient buildings, city walls, and fortifications, wells, cisterns, tombs, and graves, altars, shrines, and sacred pillars, various products of artistic skill, for example, idols, figurines, coins, statues, tools of various kinds and weapons, utensils for household use, such as jars, bowls, and lamps. In short, any product of human labor and skill is serviceable to the archaeologist. Through such things he may trace the people's progress in the arts and sciences and be able to give them their right place in the scale of culture. Of a special interest, however, are the few inscriptions that have been recovered thus far from the soil of Palestine. Whence have materials of this sort been obtained? In part from the representations, the inscriptions, and reliefs of the spoil carried away from Israel by invaders like the Assyrians and Babylonians, in part also from the surface of the soil where may still be found such things as ancient high places, wells, walls, and building materials from ancient structures which had been torn down and utilized by the natives in the erection of modern houses, etc., but the most fertile source of such materials has been and will continue to be the work of the excavator. Thus far, excavations of any extent have been conducted only at Jerusalem, Jericho, Gezer, Samaria, Beth Shemesh, Tanakh, Megiddo, Lachish, Telesafi, Gath, Tel Zechariah, Azika, Tel and Marisha. The work of excavation in Palestine has little more than begun. There is yet much soil to be overturned. In the words of Dr. F. J. Bliss, himself a competent and successful excavator, excavation has all the possibilities of an infant art. The debris of ages has only just begun to reveal its treasures. Scattered under the soil are countless documents, documents in stone and metal in earthenware, documents inscribed and uninscribed, but each waiting to tell its tale of the past.
of the hundreds of buried sites in syria and palestine those in which excavation has been attempted on any large scale do not reach the number of twenty relatively few inscriptions have as yet been recovered from the soil of palestine this is in part due to the many political and military vicissitudes of the land and in part to the destructive effects of climate and soil the more important written documents found are the moabite stone the siloam inscription the geyser calendar the lakish tablet the ostraca from samaria the assyrian tablets from geyser and from teanot the lion seal of megiddo and the stamp jar handles and telesaphi and neighboring sites the finds of the excavators have thrown much light on certain phases or sections of hebrew history for example it is pretty generally conceded now that the palestine excavations support the contention that there was no sudden incursion into palestine of an overwhelming horde of hebrews sweeping everything before them but that the process of hebraizing canaan was a slow and gradual one again the excavations show that the civilization of palestine into which the hebrews came and with which they identified themselves was not a pure unmixed product but rather a complex and composite culture into which had entered most varying elements from widely separated homes it was a cosmopolitan life in large measure many more interesting revelations doubtless await the spade of the excavator history of the semitic world a very important contribution to the understanding of hebrew history is obtained through the study of the history of the neighboring nations first of all the inscriptions of egypt babylonia assyria persia moab and syria contain many references to israel and judah which substantiate modify correct or help in the interpretation of the statements of the old testament itself in addition to the concrete statements regarding israel and judah to be obtained from the inscriptions of neighboring peoples the entire progress of their history must be considered in its bearing upon hebrew history by geographical location the inhabitants of palestine were the connecting link between the two great centers of civilization in the oriental world namely the valley of the nile and that of the euphrates it was impossible for them to live an isolated life they were of necessity involved in all the movements of the life of the orient across their border marched and countermarched the armies of the east and their own fate lay in the hands of the great contenders for world supremacy the foreign policies of egypt of syria of Uratu, of babylonia of assyria and of persia each in turn affected more or less profoundly the course of hebrew history 
we cannot understand the reign of king hezekiah for example apart from an insight into the larger political field of egypt and western asia we get valuable light from the series of events culminating in the maccabean revolt and the full significance of that struggle as we view it in relation to the tangible politics of egypt of syria and of rome no important political or economic movement anywhere in the world of egypt and western asia was without great significance for the hebrew kingdoms not only in such external ways was israel affected by the world about her she was herself part and parcel of that world the historian must fully recognize and give due weight to this fact the hebrews were semites living among semites there is thus a very real sense in which the life of the entire semitic world was one life its underlying currents its dominating motives its psychological reactions to the phenomena of experience were throughout the length and breadth of that world fundamentally the same to write the history of any part of the semitic world without constant reference to the life of the other parts would be as radically wrong as to attempt to obtain an intelligent understanding of the history of the state of massachusetts apart from a thorough knowledge of the history of the United States and of England. Yet the importance of this method of approach to Hebrew history and its full significance are only just beginning to dawn upon Old Testament scholars. Problems in Hebrew History The kind of problems that interest historians of the Hebrews at the present time may be indicated by a few examples the hebrew settlement in canaan invites investigation conflicting views in the old testament raise questions regarding the manner and duration of the hebrew entry the likelihood of the ubari of the tel el armana letters having been hebrews in a wider application of the name involves the probability of their having been marauders in or invaders of canaan in the fifteenth century b c the steel of menepta places israel in palestine about twelve hundred b c what relation did the hibari and israel of palestine bear to the jacob tribes in egypt were they the same people or different branches of one and the same people when did they first enter canaan at the time of the hyksos invasion or in the armarna period or at some other time the results of excavation show no break in the culture of canaan at any point in the early days was israel's settlement there a peaceful one not disturbing existing conditions did the israelites bring with them a culture so akin to that of canaan as to make amalgamation easy and natural or did they come with everything to learn from the canaanites but in such relatively slight numbers and so gradually as to produce no appreciable 
effect upon the life of the times. Another group of problems besets the return of Judah from exile in Babylon and the restoration of the Jewish community. Is the chronicler's account in Ezra and Nehemiah a wholly trustworthy one? Was there the return of a large body of exiles in 536 B.C.? To what extent did the chronicler use sources in his record of these events, and to what extent did he write in independence of sources? Which was the pioneer in the work of restoration, Ezra or Nehemiah? Was the hostility of the Samaritans toward the Jews fundamentally on account of religious or political considerations? Did the old breach between the North and the South reassert itself here? To what degree is the chronology of the Old Testament trustworthy? Checking it up where we have the data for testing it, we seem forced to doubt its validity at many points. For example, the period from the Exodus to the laying of the foundation stone of Solomon's temple was according to 1 Kings 6 1, 480 years. But the sum of the figures given in the Hexateuch, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, for the same period is 550 years. And these figures do not include the days of Joshua the elders who outlived Joshua, Samuel, and Saul, which, if added, would bring the total up toward 650 years. The total of the reigns of the kings of Judah from Athaliah to the sixth year of Hezekiah, as given in Kings, is 165 years. The figures for the corresponding period in Israel are 144 years. The chronology of Hezekiah is in great confusion. According to 2 Kings 18.2, compared with 16.2, Ahaz was about nine years old when his son Hezekiah was born. Samaria fell in 721 B.C., the sixth year of Hezekiah, according to 2 Kings 18.9 and 10 thus placing Hezekiah's accession in 727 or 726 B.C. Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. was in the 14th year of Hezekiah, according to 2 Kings 18.13. This places his accession in 715 or 714 B.C. Such problems call for the most careful and thoroughgoing application of historical method to the reconstruction of the history of the Hebrews. Intelligence of a high order and patience unlimited are requisite for the treatment of this great subject. There is opportunity here for almost unlimited work and the reward from the point of view of the genuine student will certainly be commensurate with the labor involved. End of chapter 3, part 5. Recording by Tony Richardson. Part 5. The Study of the Old Testament and the Religion of Israel.